Hey there, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. Look out for them later. There's some information that will be valuable to you. Anyway, for now, trying to find great guests for the show is never easy, but it's also never easy to find someone who's willing to talk as openly and frankly about a particular subject that a lot of people in the world look down their nose at. This man is the world's most sought-after speaker in network marketing. Having been a leader in the industry for over 25 years, his career has given him a broad range of experience, making him a top-field producer, building sales organizations, totaling over half a million distributors in more than 60 countries. He has taught millions of people all over the globe the tools to become top network marketing professionals through his courses and live events, sharing the stage with virtually every major speaker in the personal development and network marketing space. We have mutual friends in people like Grant Cardone and Tony Robbins, and he's even been interviewed by Larry King before his passing. He's the president of a $200 million network marketing company, co-founder and president of the People's Network, and author of the international best-selling book with over 4 million copies sold called GoPro, The Steps to Becoming a Network Marketing Professional. Please welcome somebody who's got a bags of energy, and I know you're going to enjoy, Eric Worry. Well, Eric, thank you so much for coming to join us on the podcast today. And boy, have we got an interesting subject to talk about. But before we get into the whole world of network marketing and why it seems to have a bit of a bum rap out there, I'd first of all like to know how the god and the guru of network marketing seems to have got himself into that in the first place. So where did it start for you? Hey, Spencer, I appreciate the, the opportunity to chat with you. It's fun to be able to connect. It started for me, I mean... You hear a lot of these rags to riches stories in network marketing, right? Uh, people didn't have anything and, you know, they kind of found this uh, uh, opportunity to be able to build something up entrepreneurially. That was me. Uh, I've, I started in this profession when I was 23 and um, really, you know, kind of growing up, did, never really had uh, much success. I barely escaped high school, uh, was not a good student. I counted it up one time. I had 18 jobs by the time I was 23. Um, what you think about it, it's kind of hard to do. And, uh, and then I got introduced to this profession. And um, at first I was skeptical like most people, but I was broke at the same time. And the people who introduced me um, were successful. So I was like, well, if they're successful, you know, maybe I can draft off them a bit. And uh, if I'm hang around other successful people, maybe it'll rub off. So I started, it's 1988. So a long time ago, um, before most of your listeners were born, I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be so sure about that. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. 1988 started and uh, had a little bit of success, which kind of kept me in the game. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I've been involved in various capacities for the last, what, 33 years. What, what was the company you started with? The company was NSA, Water Filters, um, National Safety Associates. They're, they're, they've now morphed into Juice Plus. Okay. But back then they were selling water filters and then air filters. Uh, and they were, you know, back in the day, it was $5,000 to join. You got 40 water filters to go sell to other people. It's $5,000 every month to qualify to get a check. Um, it was a different era for sure. I mean, today is uh, much more consumer friendly than, uh, than the aggressive approach that was taken back then. And even Juice Plus has, has morphed uh, dramatically into, um, you know, fruits and vegetables and, you know, moms on a mission, those types of things. I remember in 1987 or 1988, so I'm 50 years old, so I was just about the time I was leaving school, I went to a presentation for a company called Herbalife. And I'd never heard of them, didn't know what they were, went down and sat on this presentation and someone asked me to, and again, I had no money, and someone asked me to write a check out to buy this kit. And uh, I was like, mm, all right then. And so I went to my mom, I said, can I have some cash? I need to buy this new business idea that I've got. And uh, she said, what is it? 
I said, it's a company called Herbal Life. She went, oh, for goodness sake, that's just like Avon. What are you doing? Stop that. Don't be so ridiculous. And, uh, and that ended that very quickly. And uh, fortunately, I got into uh, working in the office equipment industry. So I was trained by Rank Xerox in the office equipment industry. So that's the direction I headed. But that was my kind of like first exposure. And I think that that Avon was like a really big name in the UK when I was a kid, you know. There were lots of Avon ladies, you know, that happened a lot. There was always a, a booklet at the front doorstep, you know, that you had to, you know, my mum would grab hold of it and tick some boxes in it and then put it out again with some... Uh, even leave the money on the doorstep, which seems a bit weird thinking about it, but she used to leave the money in the book on the doorstep waiting for her lipstick or bloody makeup or whatever it was. So... I think that most people have been exposed to network marketing, but I just want to go back a little bit before we get into this and start uh, understanding a bit about the kind of kid you were. Because you say you didn't do very well at school. Guess what? I wasn't a great student either. But what, what was your family life like as a child and when you were growing up? Were you have a big family? Were your mum and dad successful? Were they kind of uh, blue collar? What was it? Well, um, I'm, I'm the oldest of five kids. My... I grew up in a very loving family. Uh, we were what I would call lower middle class. Um, my father was successful in selling real estate. And once, when he was in his 30s, he had a kind of a religious transformation and, and uh, got involved with a church that my uncle had started. And um, so worked for the church, um, and never took a salary and it was always kind of scrappy he would buy and sell cars or he would just do things to figure out a way to survive um but you know on one side of it i've I've certainly respected the fact that he wasn't one of those people who were like taking money from the church he was he was uh being of service any way he could and he'd find a way you know we'd find a way to uh to pay the bills find a way to to, you know, I, 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 I joke that we never went hungry, but we never got to eat what we wanted, really, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. I, I remember I got in one of the biggest fights I ever got in with my dad, because when I was growing up, the thing that you had to have in the United States was Levi's red tag jeans. If you did not have Levi's red tag jeans, you were out of the club. And my dad refused to pay $22 for a pair of jeans. Uh, one day he came home with 10 pair of rustler irregulars and uh, you know you probably don't even know what that is but it's it's like the the most humiliating form of uh blue jean you could you could possibly purchase and i just said dad you spent more on these 10 pair of jeans that i will never wear than you would have on one pair of jeans that i wanted and we got in this big big fight and and uh he just, you know, hey, kid, you can go out there and earn your, earn your own money anytime you want, which was a good point. Uh, but so, I mean, that was kind of, you know, we were kind of scrappy looking for deals. And, I, you know, I spent most weekends with my parents driving through garage sales and, you know, people selling stuff out of their out of their garage or whatever. And um, and that was that was our bringing. So it was loving. It was fine. Uh, but I always kind of wanted more. I always like, why, why not have, we, we had every weird color car uh, you can imagine instead of, you know, we never had black or white or red. We had like mint green and burnt orange and all these other kind of cars that, you know, my dad could get a deal on and flip. And, uh, you know, so I was always like, why can't we have something a little bit, uh, you know, why not us? Why, why can't we have something fancy? You know? <laughs> My mum had a lime green opal mantle when I was a kid as well. And I was so embarrassed about it. I was just like, why have you got to have a car that color, mum? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one quick story. Um, my dad ran this. Uh, it was like, you know, you know, that when like a summer camp, do they have those? You know, the summer, yeah. a summer camp for kids or whatever. My dad ran that for the church and kind of built one out in the woods. And, and one summer we were, we were uh, going to, um, drive out to California from the middle of the United States to see my grandparents. So my dad t- found an old school bus, like, and and built like tables and chairs and couches in it out of like wood and plywood and two by fours and stuff, and and found like secondhand paint, which was lime green paint, 
and he painted this bus lime green all the way around. And then he painted the day before we left, he painted the top white. And overnight, there was like dew and, and humidity in the air. And it made the white kind of come down the sides of the green. So it was like an ice cream cone that had kind of dripped <laughs> down all the sides that he didn't care. So we got in this, and I was, you know, a teenager and so embarrassed everywhere we went. Um, and he basically rebuilt that whole bus, both trips, you know, changing carburetors and changing transmissions and the whole thing. And I'm just like, can we just fly like normal people? Um, <laughs> but anyway, so. <laughs> do, you, do you think you're a lot like your dad? Um, I'm, I'm, um, my dad, if you ever meet my dad, you'll, you'll be a better person for it. He, he's a, a, a kind, loving, he's, he's the kind of person that would visit you in the hospital when nobody else would. Uh, he'll call for no reason. Uh, he doesn't have an agenda. Uh, he's, he's creative. He's scrappy still. Um, he always finds a way. He's a, he's a better friend to people than people are to him. Um, so my, my dad, my mom's the same. I mean, so I, I'm, I'm very, very blessed. Uh, I wouldn't trade the upbringing. I think I'm probably a little bit more purely entrepreneurial than, than I mean, they're both entrepreneurial, my mom and dad, but I think I, I maybe scaled it up. Okay. And, and are you the only person in your family out of your brothers and sisters, the five of you that, that went on to achieve great success or is there success stories with your siblings too? Well, I think the, um, they're, they're all, they're all successful in their way. Uh, you know, they, they all have different kind of passions and different kind of things. My, my, uh, my younger, one of my younger brothers, uh, runs a big painting business and the other one, uh, runs a big computer business. They're both successful. My, uh, my sister, one of my sisters is, um, you know, works, but is also a wife of a pastor out on the West Coast of the United States. And my other sister uh, lives in Wisconsin and, and her and her husband are successful too. But I mean, it's just, how do you define it? I think it's just adds commas and zeros, you know, wherever you put the de decimal point, but but everybody's doing and when you fine. when you started to build your career in the network marketing industry did you have any anybody in the family frown upon you did they look down their nose and say what are you doing that for my my father and his partner a guy by the name of john joyce one of my first mentors ever they were the ones that sponsored me they they so, so my my dad was involved and my mom and dad were, were both involved i got much more involved than they did they were involved in real estate more more than they were in network marketing, but I was in their group. My, um, you know, everybody is, it's funny because inside of family, there's some people that say, that's the silliest thing in the world. You'll never do that. Uh, or I'll never do that. Um, most of them have tried at some point, maybe for a minute, or they were a customer or something over the course of 30 years. Uh, I think I've, most people in the family still kind of don't really know what I do uh, inside of network marketing. Um, they know now because I'm more, I'm more of an ambassador slash trainer than I am a field person. But when I was in the field, it's just like, wow, how does this all work? Because it just, you know, they, they get confused by it. Um, but, you know, I, I get the usual entrepreneurial, why can't you slow down stuff? Um, which I think every entrepreneur gets is it's like, when are you going to, you know, smell the roses? I'm like, I smell them every day. I'm, I'm looking out over the city of Dubai in the, you know, the Burj Al Arab in a ridiculous suite <clears throat> with my family. I'm having a great time. Life's good. Don't, don't worry about me. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, that, you, there's, there's the, the whole friends and family thing. There's going to be some that support. There's going to be some that resent. There's going to be some that judge. Um, I learned to use the judgment as fuel a long time ago. And that's how you got to where you got to. All right, let's talk network marketing then. Let's get, let's get into this because this is a, a fascinating subject. I have friends that are very successful friends in network marketing also have lots of people that I've known over the years that have kind of like you say tried it for a minute or tried it for a while and not really got very far the the thing that 
that, that really fascinates me about it is not necessarily the products or the companies. It's the general perception of what it actually is. And such a, I mean, look, I come from the UK where everybody hates salespeople, period. Doesn't matter what you're selling. You could be, you could be selling the cure for cancer, but they'd still a salesperson and they'd, they'd hate you for it. But network marketing even more, it's kind of like, it's like, it's like, that's a scam. That's a pyramid scheme. That's, that's, you know, that's, that's, you're just trying to make money because you're at the top and everybody else suffers. And I, I kind of gave up trying to fight that negativity when people, you know, innately talked about it. But why do you think it gets such a bum rap? Um, <clears throat> I'll tell you why. I mean, first of all, uh, you know, since this is the profession I've chosen, um, it, it took a while for me to kind of get my arms around it as far as the the perception issue and and was it real um was was the perception deserved and in some cases the perception is deserved because <clears throat> i will tell you when most people join network marketing um yourself your friends myself it's they're not joining it to start a business or build a career they're joining it. <clears throat> the moment they decide to join is the moment when their mental candidate list gets long enough to take their risk away. They go, I know so-and-so, they'd probably do it. And this one would probably do it. My brother would probably do it. My mother-in-law would probably do it. My crazy friend at work that's passing out catalogs, they'll probably do it. And as soon as that list gets long enough, they go, you know what? All right, sign me up. Because they think that they can take their risk, pass it to somebody else. And then who knows, maybe it'll take off and maybe it'll turn it into, you know, that's not a business plan. That's literally a mental, mentally a lottery ticket. Can I get lucky? Okay. So that is the mental um, state of the average person joining. Okay. Um, <clears throat> in some cases that's changing, but we'll talk about that later. The other the other thing that that contributes to this problem is people in their effort to want to sign people up, recruit people, overhype the benefit of network marketing. They sell it like a lottery ticket. They say it's easy and it's not easy. They say everybody's winning and everybody doesn't win at anything. They say the product sells itself. And if that was true, the company wouldn't need you. I mean, they say all of this stuff, you know, <clears throat> to get people to join. And it's so overhyped that it cannot possibly live up to the expectation. So here's what you have, what you're left with. An overhyped expectation. Like it's going to be fast, easy, simple. You can build a huge business. It's going to be amazing. And then when they join, it's hard, it's judged. Uh, uh, everybody is, you know, you, you had your list of five people that you thought were gonna join. And if they didn't join, you were like, well, I guess it's over. So they rip up that lottery ticket. And then when somebody says, well, hey, I, you know, what do you think about network marketing? They say, well, I've been there, I've done it. I, I bought the t-shirt and you know, I, I know everything there is to know and it's all a scam. Well, they didn't join a business. They just tried to get lucky and it didn't work out either for themselves or somebody in their family or a friend. It didn't work out. So most of the perceptions, <clears throat> some of it's earned by the hype. Some of it's earned by people thought that they could get something for nothing. And those things combined, right, lead to the average person going, <clears throat> this is, you know, this, this can't possibly be legitimate because it's presented as as a, a lotto ticket. Um, here's what I teach people and what I learned over the course of 33 years. This is hard. Building a network marketing business is hard. It will test every part of your emotional capacity. It will push you in a way that you'll never be pushed in a corporate job. It will expose every part of your lack and thinking and, and flaws in your character that are, that are there. Um, it's tough, but if you have an entrepreneurial bone in your body, it's better. It's better than any other form of entrepreneurship on earth. And I would challenge anyone on earth to a debate any day, any time. 
and they cannot win the debate for the price of entry, the upside potential, the amount of support that's available, the amount of patience and flexibility that's offered. Um, you, you can line it up against any other entrepreneurial venture for the average person, and this wins. Um, but you got to work your butt off, and you got to get better every single day, and it's an emotional what, journey. What makes a good network marketer? What kind of characteristics do they need to have? What kind of personality traits or, or previous skills do they need to have a fighting chance of becoming successful? Um, I, tell, I tell people there's, there's three basic characteristics that are necessary if you want to go to the top. Number one, you need to be willing. You cannot force somebody to be successful. If, you, if, if I signed you up and you weren't willing to do what was necessary, I can't help you. So you got to be willing to do <clears throat> what's necessary in building a business. Number two, you need to be coachable because this is a different business. <clears throat> I don't care how much success you've had in the past. This is completely unique. And if you won't listen, you're just going to frustrate everybody and it's not going to be worth my time to work with you. And third, they need to be hungry. Hungry enough to go through the struggle. Hungry enough to face being judged. Hungry enough to deal with the perception issues in the marketplace, hungry enough to get past family and friends rolling their eyes at you. Uh, if, you, if, you if you're those three things, you can go all the way to the top. If you're, if you're, but you have to be all three, actually. If you're two out of three, it's not enough. Um, those three things, frankly, and I think you'd agree those three things are doable by just about anybody. They're really a decision. Uh, then you, you need to learn the skills, right? So I tell people five basic things. One, network marketing isn't perfect, but it is better. Two, if you're going to do it, decide to be a professional, right? Decide to go pro, walk away from amateur, walk away from, from uh, uh, you know, this lottery ticket mentality. Three, like any profession, there's some skills you need to develop, you know, some fundamental skills. And don't think it's just all about luck and timing and positioning and all that nonsense. You got to you got to be competent at some point. Four, anything worthwhile takes time. This, just like a traditional business, you're going to give it a three years for a traditional business to, to get, get solid. It's probably going to take you a similar amount of time here. And then five, it's worth it. It's worth it. If you're emotionally strong enough, it's worth it. I mean, the amount of benefit is just staggering for a person who's willing to, to do what's necessary to grow a business. When you look at the, the people in the business that, that are professional and take it really professionally, what percentage of the network marketing industry do you believe take it really professionally? Let me give you some statistics that no one else will probably give you. Um, this comes from big data. And if you look at big data on any profession, particularly sales or, or entrepreneurial professions, it's like something like 94% of people in the United States, I don't know worldwide, 94% of real estate agents that get their real estate license never sell one home. 94%. Wow. Okay. Um, most people who start college don't finish. Most people who buy a book don't finish. Um, you know, I mean, you could put a thousand, you know, thousand dollars in the last chapter of most books and just leave it there and it would never ever get claimed because they never get to that last chapter. Uh, that's just the way it works. And especially inside of our world, um, the price of entry is so low. If we charged $100,000 for somebody to join, there'd be enough reasons for them to stick around when it got tough, even if their expectations were out of whack. But when it's $200 or whatever for a person to join, it's the price of dinner for a family. Like when it gets tough, it's easy to quit. So let me give you some statistics. And these might shock some people. Um, if you take the last uh, million people that joined uh, network marketing, okay? There's approximately 100 million people involved in network marketing right now. The profession does about $200 billion a year. It pays out approximately $200 million a day in commissions. So anybody says it doesn't work, you're not paying attention. Um, it works, it works fine, but here's the thing. Take a snapshot at any moment in time, could low price of entry, uh, you got to do it on your own, 
right? Nobody's going to force you to do it. Nobody's going to fire you, but nobody's going to give you a raise unless you make it happen. So take a snapshot. Last million people that joined at any moment in time, 70% of that group has not recruited a single person. Okay, 70%. So maybe they joined and they thought they were going to, but it was too scary or the first person said boo or whatever it was, or they never intended to. They were just, they, they joined just because they wanted to get the product at a, at a discount and they just became a customer. That's fine. They're tourists. Cool. 70%. 20% have recruited between one and two people. Total. 5% have recruited between three and five. 3% have recruited between six and nine. And 2% have recruited 10 or more. Wow. Okay. So Everybody outside of that 2%, in my opinion, are tourists. Thanks for coming to the network marketing theme park. Take some pictures, meet some friends, enjoy the ride. Uh, we hope when you go home, you can keep using the product. And tourists are important. Tourists are important in Dubai. Tourists are important in Rome. Tourists are important in Las Vegas. Um, most people who come to Las Vegas are not going to live there. They're going home eventually. And that's the same thing inside of network marketing. Most people come, they use the products and some of them decide to face their fears and build a business and a lot of them don't. So I believe there's only four things that we do inside of network marketing. We sell products using word of mouth advertising. We recruit an ever expanding team of people doing the same thing. We duplicate that process, which starts to create some leverage and we provide leadership to the organizations that we build to increase the productivity of those teams. That's the only four things that we do, right? So that 2% is vitally important inside of our profession. They provide, they, they do 70% of all the building, the recruiting, 70%. Um, they average 27 recruits once you get into that group. So I say the starting point, somebody wants to be successful inside of network marketing, get in, get yourself to 10 people, whatever you gotta do, that's just a decision. Get yourself to 10 people. If you're not very influential, you might have to talk to more people. If you're very influential, you maybe talk to less, but get yourself into that group and now you're in the starting blocks. Now you can decide how far you wanna go. The rest are tourists. When you, when you consider the, the different uh, uh, companies that are in the network marketing space, are, is everyone doing, I know it's different products, but is everyone using the same or very similar model or, um, you know, so let's say let's say I wanted to become a network marketer, but you know I've got a friend who works for Forever Living, and they're like, Spence, Spence, come and join, come and join, and I'm like, well, do you know what? I've I've tasted that stuff that you that aloe vera stuff, and it's disgusting, yeah. so I'm not really into it. But I really like the XYZ product, and so maybe I'll go and do that. Uh, is the, is the model the same for every every business? Um, not quite. I mean, the the principles are the same. You're going to do those four things. You're going to sell. You're going to recruit. You're going to duplicate. And you're going to lead, right? But some organizations reward the selling part much higher. Like you talked about Avon, they make, you know, for just making that direct sale. Some reward the recruiting and the duplicating higher. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so uh, you know, you pick a cosmetics company with a bunch of single moms out there, um, not necessarily single moms, but moms, let's say, who are moving those cosmetic products and they're making they're making a nice living just selling products and others, they make a smaller living on the sales piece and they make a bigger percentage building a larger team. Um, so it's, it's, it depends on the philosophy of the organization, uh, where they want to take their dollars, their, their uh, commissionable dollars and where they want to put them, which groups they, do they want to reward the best of them balance uh, the retail commissions piece the build a small part-time business residual income piece, the full-time piece, and then the massive income piece. They try and balance those things out and provide an opportunity for Can all Can you of those name people. some names so we've got some perspective here, people, companies we might know? I'll give you an example. There's, um, I have a friend of mine, number one earner in, uh, I, I just, you know, I coach and mentor about, 500 people that make a million dollars a year or more in network marketing and about a dozen people that make a million dollars a month in network marketing. Um, and then just unlimited amounts of six figure earners. 
So every once in a while, they'll compare themselves with, with a, a different company. So one, it works with a cosmetics company called Unique, and, um, and they pay pretty high commissions for the seller selling cosmetics to the person. Then they're like, wow, I have to put, I have to go through so many people in order to be able to make my million dollars a year. And, you know, if I, if you took my organization and put it in this other compensation plan, then I'd be making more money. I said, well, maybe, but maybe you, you, you're creating the sales because those commissions are being paid to those average people making a few hundred dollars a month. And maybe if they weren't doing that, you wouldn't have the, re, the residual that you have, you know, so it's, there's, there's not a winner and a loser. There's different cultures. You know, you take a Janess is much more um, opportunity driven. Um, and then you take a, a forever living products is maybe a little bit more lab coat and, and sciency and, you know, aloe vera, whatever, clinical studies over on this side. Um, and and there's, there's not a right or a wrong. It's what's, a, what's the fit for that person? So it's not like there's somebody who's getting it so right and everybody else is screwing up. Got it. Understood. You know, Got different it. cultures, just like, you know, Microsoft has a different culture than, than Tesla, mm -hmm. right? Then IBM, then, you know, the, the EMAR building company here that has every building in the whole city, it seems like, um, <laughs> I'm sure that there are different cultures. So it's, it's like I say, it's not winners and losers. People find different ways to be successful. Got it. Understood. Okay. I think now, when you, something like 24 companies right now that do over a billion dollars in sales. When you, when you compare 1988 and 1990, that period of time before we had, you know, the wonders of the internet and social media, um, I'm sure there was a, a lot more leather soles getting worn out going about your business than there may be today where you have all of these tools, which means you can sit on your phone, your laptop, and you can do a lot of it from there. It, it would appear to me that it's probably a lot easier because back in 1989, when I learned to sell, I was knocking on doors and making cold calls. It was 100 door knocks a day, 100 cold calls a day. And that was drilled into me for about 18 months until it became how I thought and operated. But to, to think about somebody doing that nowadays, they'd be mortified thinking about making 10 cold calls, let alone, let alone 100. Has, has it got easier? Um, it's different. You got to define what easy is. And and let me let me describe and I'll I'll answer my own question. Okay, uh, is how much did knocking on those doors and grinding that stuff out help you build yourself into the person that you uh, are? It today? was fundamental. Fundamental, right? So yes, you might not have to do that today, but you might be missing something by not. Okay. You know, there was something in the grind. There's something in the wind in your face. There's something in um, the test of your fortitude that makes something of you. If you're just sitting at home slamming buttons, clicking buttons, yes, your reach might be expanded, but your impact might not be, and the, the development of you might not be as accelerated. So Yes, you, you get reach, but even for me, back when I started, we did hotel meetings, right? So we do a Tuesday night hotel meeting, a Thursday night and a Saturday morning every week. And those meetings made me, the, the being a presenter, being part of it, being grinding it out, bringing guests, doing whatever I needed to do, becoming a, a member of that little society, having a, a, the cocoon, the ecosystem that caused me to be a better presenter, to solve problems, to do whatever. If I didn't have that, I don't know if I'd be here today. So the price of entry is lower. You can smash buttons for sure. But the price of exit, exit is equally low. You just close your laptop and then you're, you, you, you're, it's out of sight, out of mind. So it, it, it's a it's a different answer to than maybe some people would expect, but social media. There's no question, social media is amping up the game. There's no question, 
that the, the, the ability to get leads today is if, if you're paying attention at all, you should be able to have unlimited people to talk to. Yeah. If you're just have a little bit of, of creativity, you can reach out to people who think exactly like you think, have the same interests you have and have something to talk to them about. And then over some period of the conversation, you can let them know about the opportunity that you have. If, you, if you've got a logic chain that connects at all, you can do that. Um, but I will tell you, especially like in the COVID, um, there's, a, there's a missing piece, which is prior to COVID, people, most of the success was happening face-to-face. -face. People meet in coffee shops, whatever, uh, sitting down, sharing what they're doing. They might connect on social, but then they'll meet at some point. Now, everybody's, you know, doing Zooms or whatever, and the top person in the company is doing, out, doing all of them, and everybody else just plugs in. And so the, the, the development incubator for those other leaders is, is being shortcutted a bit. The grind of meeting in that coffee shop is being shortcutted a bit. The development of, of the human connection is being shortcutted a bit. So when I tell, ask people to audit their organizations, the organizations and the leaders that they are building, how many of them have started with personal connection and how many of them started purely um, through technology? The personal connection is like 80% of the, the true value of the organization and the technology, even though it gets you reach and you get more to join and all that stuff, you still have to figure out a way to make the human connection. Happen. It's interesting you say that, you know, because you were talking to, I watched a video with you with Larry King and he was talking to you about um, public speaking, about it's one of the biggest fears that people have, which we, we you know, you people like you and I know, we don't get it because we don't have that fear ourselves, but you know, we know that lots of people do. Well, we started, I, I don't know about you, but I started with that fear. I, I don't have that fear now, but I started with it. I think that, that, I remember, I, rem I remember the first time I did stand up in front of a group of people, my peers in the office one day, I remember doing it. There were like 10 people there and I had to demonstrate how uh, a product worked. And I stood there and I, and I had the product in front of me. And uh, yeah, it, I, was, I was 19 years old. I shit my pants. But, um, <laughs> you know, once, once I got that one out of the way, it was, it was okay to move forward. And, my, and funnily enough, my business partner now, Danielle, who's been with me for now uh, 15 or 16 years, went on her first day of the job, she started with 16 trainees and uh, I said to them on, uh, it, was a, it was a Sunday because we, we start work on Sunday here. I said, next Sunday, you, I gave them all a product. I said, you're standing up in front of 200 people and presenting this product. And they all looked at me and was like, what? They didn't even know what they were talking about, let alone the fact that they had to stand up. And Danielle was the only person that stood up in front of everyone and delivered a, a, a good, it wasn't perfect, of course not, but an, an, a good effort at delivering that. So when you talk about public speaking, I, I just want to lean into the whole Zoom thing versus the face-to-face. Public speaking on Zoom isn't the same as standing up in a room in front of 20, 30, 50,000, whatever it may be, people. And so maybe maybe people find that easier, but you're right, they miss that human connection. Maybe you do need the nerves before you go on stage type of thing, you know, that nervous energy to be able to bring the best out in you. It's, it's grinding the improvement, wanting to get better next time. It's, it's uh, getting feedback. You do something, you get feedback, and then you make an adjustment. You do it again, you get feedback, and and it either worked or it didn't. If it worked, do more of that, and if it didn't work, pay attention. You know that joke didn't work. Feedback. I, I got applause when I said that. Feedback. All of this stuff uh, really helps to shape your communication skills and your leadership skills. The feedback of it. Um, helps to build your confidence, helps you to, you know, cause, it, it gives you also some recognition and some emotional reward that, that maybe isn't, that isn't there enough. Um, so, I mean, for me, if somebody wants to change their life, I, I think one of, one of the skills that they must develop is communication skills. Uh, I, I think the best communicators rule the world. Um, you can, you can be really good at something, but if you have the ability to communicate, you know why to do something. You, you know, the person who knows how to do something is always gonna work for the person who knows why to do something. 
and the person who knows why to knows, do something knows how to communicate to the how people, how that, uh, uh, why to go get it done. Um, it's, somebody told me when I was in my 20s, they said, if you learn how to speak, if you learn how to communicate ideas, you never have to worry about making money the rest of your life. I would agree. That's, that's, that's something I would agree with for sure. Tell me, you travel the world. Where, where do you think around the world are the countries where network marketing is embraced more and people tend to do better? Are there places like that? Here's every time I come into a country, no matter where it is in the world, and I've spoken all over the world, as you said, somebody pulls me aside and says, I just need you to understand. It's different. It's different. <laughs> uh, people here, people here they, you know, they really judge it in the United Kingdom. I uh, just want you to know it's not the same as United States and you crazy entrepreneurial cowboys. Um, you know, it's a little bit more, you know, I go to Germany, they say, hey, you guys have this entrepreneurial, do what you want. This is very specific and rigid here. Everybody wants this exact system. I go to Russia and they say, you know, hey, capitalism, um, you know, there, there's it's a two-edged sword here and people judge this stuff. And I go to Brazil and they say, you know, oh, you know, here, everybody laughs. Everybody laughs at you. I go to the United States and say, man, if I was just in, in Brazil, it would be amazing. But in the United States, everybody's heard about it already. Um, here's, it's not about geography. Never has been. It's about a psychographic. It's about who's hungry, who's entrepreneurial, who's looking for opportunity, who can face judgment. Who, the, the catch to network marketing is simply this. You have to endure the, the social judgment of ignorant people. You have to be willing to lose social esteem. That's a really, hold on a minute. That's a really important statement. You have to endure the social judgment of ignorant people. Yep. And, and, and maybe even more than endure, you have to embrace it. You have to use it as fuel. Which is a, which is a big deal for some people, isn't it? That's a big, big. If somebody unfriends them, they, they, they just want to commit suicide. I'm just, what, what are you talking about? Who cares? You didn't even know how, why you were a friend with that person in the first place. What in the world? If somebody's not supporting your entrepreneurial dream, let them go. They don't need to be part of your life. Um, but I will tell you, I learned to use it as fuel. I learned to, every person that rolled their eyes at me, I wrote their name down, I put it on my legal pad, and I said, they're a reason why I'm going to, I'm going to shove it in their face. The greatest revenge is massive success. Yeah, I mean, at the beginning, it was to prove something to prove them wrong. That was good fuel for me. And then it was to prove myself right, right? It was to make some people proud of me. It was make other people eat their words. And eventually I learned, I mean, th those are powerful fuels, but I learned to rise even above that. And my fuel became um, my ability to contribute to other people is what drives me way more. I, I don't even pay attention. Somebody rolled it, rolls their eyes. I mean, if you want to have a great debate on network marketing, fantastic. If they roll their eyes, I just laugh. I mean, I have 500 friends making a million dollars a year with no employees. I just laugh. You know, I got a dozen friends making a million a month. Okay. With no employees. I just laugh. And it's like, you can choose to stay in the matrix. I'm going to be Neo um, over here. And not everybody wants to get out of the matrix. You know, and that's okay. It's okay. It's totally fine. I, I and then another sick part of me actually, actually, um, I started to enjoy it when other people quit network marketing because I was outlasting them. Another one bites the dust, I'm still here. Another one bites the dust, I'm still here. If I, if I stay long enough, others are gonna come and go. I'm a permanent fixture. I'm gonna be a mayor of this community. They're just tourists, fine, you know? Um, so that was fuel for me too. So you know, other people quitting didn't bother me. It's bothered me at first, but then when they quit, I went, oh, okay. I didn't know they were a tourist, but I guess they were.
that's that's fascinating you know when i was when i was a kid i I was bullied quite badly at school and uh, i my my drivers were to prove the bullies wrong and i remember when i was about 21 or 22 and and i remember this vividly i was sat in my golf gti a set of traffic lights and a guy pulled up in a in a motorbike next to me and um he looked at me i looked at him and i saw who it was and it was it was one of the bullies, and so we pulled over and said hello. And then uh, he said, "Oh, I've not seen you for a few years." I said, "I did," and his name was Justin Zimmerman. You know, I know his name. You know, <laughs> all those years ago. And he said, "Yeah, I haven't seen you for so long. How have you been?" And I just said, I "Just want to say thank you, Justin. I really appreciate it." I said, "You bullied me, and you you upset me a lot when I was a kid, but I used it as fuel." And uh, this is where I am right now. And he looked at me and he's like, man, I feel so bad. I should never have done that. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You should have done that because I wanted to prove something to you. And believe it or not, that lasted until I was probably 40 years old, wanting to prove the bullies. Yeah, that stuff. I mean, some people, uh, you're defined one way or the other by these experiences. Um, You'll either shrink by it and you'll be you'll allow yourself to be permanently scarred and that'll be a reason for you not to succeed or you'll rise to it and it'll be a reason why you do succeed. Um, All of us have a story. It's just how we're going to use it. How do we use that story in order to be able to better our lives? Um, Some of it creates limiting beliefs. Some of it creates empowering beliefs. Mm. You know, but one of my biggest heroes shut me down so hard in my first 90 days he was a, a, a American football player and uh, went to our church, friend of our family. I, and he was bigger than life, you know, taught me how to play when I was playing in high school. And I just looked up to him so much. And he, and I called him up and it was the scariest phone call ever. And he shut me down so hard, like brutal hard. Um, and I mean, it just knocked the wind out of me. And after like 10 minutes of feeling sorry for myself, I got pissed off. I said, who the hell does he think he is? I mean, he, he knows how scary, scary that was for me. And he did not have to do that. He could have been more encouraging. He told me I was good at 90 days. I'd be doing something else. Now, what I didn't know, what I didn't know until years later, and I'm glad I didn't know it is he had gotten involved in a network marketing company that, that went out of business and it, hurt his relationships and so he was wounded from that and i did not know that uh so he came in with his own psychic damage and this triggered his own you know perceptions um but i still used his shutdown because he told me i was going to quit 90 days and guess what i wanted to but because he told me i was going to i didn't because i couldn't let him (laughs) be right you know, <laughs> so I just, okay, fine. So it was, you know, three, four years later, we went to a wedding and for the first time he knew, and I knew I was making more money than he was. And, oh, it was so great. Like in the reception line, he said, Hey, I hear you're doing good. I said, yes, I am. Thank you very much. Enjoy the wedding. Uh, <laughs> Beautiful. But Beautiful. all these little defining moments, right? These little uh, uh, points of resistance. You know, take a, a single mom who, like a single mother, I think are the, the most, they're like superheroes. I don't know how they do it. Raise a family, provide for that family, do it all by themselves. They're just unbelievable. And one single mom might look at entrepreneurship as like, I can't because I'm a single mom. And another one will say, I'm a superhero. I'm a single mom. I'm going to find a way to do this. I'm going to create a family. I'm, I don't need no man. Um, if a man shows up fine, but I'm going to already have my own stuff figured out. Same circumstance. Somebody used it and somebody got used by it. Right. So these are the decisions we got to make as entrepreneurs. It's just like, how are we going to, we've all got to pass. We've all got stuff that could, that could cripple us if we let it, or we can use it to empower us. When I think about, um, the opportunities that exist in network marketing to me, the difference between being an entrepreneur and a network marketer is that most network, I say most, the ones that I've, I've been exposed to, network marketing companies, are almost giving you a platform already. They give you a product. 
They give you processes. They give you approaches so that you can sell your product. They, you haven't got to source a product. You haven't got to invent a product. You haven't got to invent anything. You've got essentially a model there that you can then take and go and use yourself. It's almost like finding clients for an existing model, which is to some degree uh, different. And, and I would argue it's to some degree easier than being an entrepreneur. It, it is if it wasn't so emotional. <laughs> I mean, because here's the thing. You got to, you got to, yes, the product is created for you. You know, we're going to sell this bottle of water, whatever. Um, and, but you got to go sell, first of yeah. all. You got to build a team. And that's a yeah. new skill, new muscle. You're a team builder and a team accelerator. You got to duplicate that team because you might be a good leader, but you're not a good leader of leaders. Mm-hmm. So how do you duplicate it um, without it spinning off the rails? You know, so so you have a basic process. And how do you lead these teams so they can be more productive? So yes, it's a microcosm. It's the promotion. It's the marketing piece of entrepreneurship. But it's so emotional. I mean, I don't believe there's a, a more emotional, maybe being an actor or something might be, might be more emotional. This is such an emotional business. If you're not able to, to manage your emotions, it's going to be a tough road. It's going to be a tough road. If, if you're addicted to other people's approval, it's going to be a tough road. If you need everybody to pat you on the back or you want it to be sexy when you tell people what you do at, at cocktail parties, it's going to be a tough road. You know, it just is for you. Uh, but if you're just like, eh, it's my life. I'm Neo. They're in the Matrix. Let's go. Yeah, um, really, really good point. That's a re- like a really valid point there. There's, are there more women in network marketing than men? Um, yeah, about 77% of all participants are women. I would say of your 500 friends though that are, that, that are doing really well, what's the split there? 50-50. Interesting. Now, because you have a um, in some of the direct sales companies, uh, like think think Avon, think cosmetics, think this. That, you know, there's a lot of participants that are quote unquote tourists. They're going to be here for a little while. They're using the product. They're sharing the product, but they're not really building a big business, right? So it's you start with 77%, and then it. And then it starts to, you get into that 2% group. Remember I told you that's entry point. Yeah. Um, that 2% group kind of boils down to around 50, 50. And then it, it, it depends on the culture of the organization. Um, like I said, you take a, like a Jeunesse, for example. What did you, what, what did Jeunesse do? What, what's the product? Well, you know, a, a personal care type okay. product, you know, health and wellness. Um, they're, they're a little bit more male dominated, uh, you know, among the top earners, you take a cosmetics company, it's going to be 99% female, yeah. right? Combo of those things. So um, a little, little different here and there, but I will tell you, it used to be in that top 500 or whatever, it used to be 80% male, 20% female, and women are rising at a dramatic pace because this fits it's their lifestyle. Um, they're stepping into their power. It's, it's an incredibly empowering thing. But again, it, this is a profession for people with emotional maturity. Um, and, you know, the average person that works a job, you can hide in that job, if you're honest. Mm-hmm. Um, you can hide in that cubicle you can do enough to get along and not ruffle any feathers. You're not improving much. You just kind of go through the motions. You get your 3% a year raise. Um, and, and, and that's your life. Here in network marketing, you can't hide at all. At all. You get paid exactly to the penny based upon the value you bring to the organization. To the penny. You're, you're not going to get ever get underpaid. And you're not going to get overpaid. You're going to get exactly fairly paid. And, you know, most corporations out there have half of their employees are hiding. Oh, for, I would say more. Yeah. I would say more. They sit there, they take the salary, they, they, they do. I think there's a, there's a, they say the average employee in, in, in the corporate world works an average of 2.6 hours a day. Yeah, and you, and, and, uh, you, you learn to get good at politics. Here, mm-hmm. politics won't help you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The only thing that will help you is production. 
You know, so it's very fair. On the other side, it does, it's not racist, it's not sexist, it's not ageist. It is, it doesn't matter. Those things do not matter inside of this structure. Doesn't matter, you know, any of those previous conditions, your past failures or past successes, your educational experience, you, you might've failed 10 times and just went bankrupt. You can come in here and produce and you'll get paid. Nobody will judge you. Don't have to have a couple of last questions before we go. Talk to me about your book. GoPro. Um, it, it, it's GoPro did ex very, very well. <laughs> I put it out uh, six or seven years ago. I have six or seven more books in my brain and I'm just such a slow and, and tedious writer that I haven't gotten them out there. But that book has sold almost 4 million copies around the world. Um, so it's done very, very well. Uh, it's kind of a centerpiece inside of the profession. Um, when I get um, responsible again, when it comes to writing, I brought two manuscripts with me on this trip, which I haven't even looked at uh, <laughs> since I got here. <laughs> uh, I'll get some other ones out uh, soon, hopefully, because uh, I, will, I will say this. I enjoy being uh, an author more than I enjoy being a writer. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoy I, the fact that I have a book out there. <laughs> I know I, I, I just had uh, Sylvester Stallone at one of my events and um, he's written 56 screenplays. He showed me a stack of his screenplays and uh, 40 of them have been produced into movies. 40 out of wow. 56. And it made me feel like a total loser. I'm like, what in the world? 56 screenplays? Come on. <laughs> so anyway, it, yeah, the book's done well. Hopefully your, your listeners um, will see something new from me at some point in the future. But uh, I went through like six different ghostwriters because I said, well, I'll just have somebody else take my words. I hear, hear about these, all these, you know, celebrities that have people do that. It never worked. I just wasted a ton of money and then yeah. finally sat down and made myself do it. So. And lastly, before I finish, when you uh, have experienced COVID like you have and the fact that we're not able to get up on stage and, and do our thing, do you miss being with people? Do you miss being on stage and, and doing your thing live? Um, I'll tell you a quick story. The answer is sure. Uh, but the other answer is it's nice to not be grinding out crazy air miles. I don't mind that. Um, we, we, I've been hosting an event in the United States called uh, GoPro for the last 11 years. And we were trying to figure out, we, we'd host it, we grew it from a couple hundred people to like 18,000. We'd host at the MGM Garden Arena where they would do the big concerts and MMA fights and boxing and all that. Um, and so we were scheduled for this last December to, to do that, to do our event there. And we were holding on, hoping that COVID would turn the corner and we'd be able to do the event. And it became apparent that there was no shot to do it. And so we decided to do something, to pivot. And we built a studio. Um, I'll have to, sh to send you a, a video of it. Imagine this, if you can, in your mind. 62 feet wide, mm -hmm. 15 feet tall, mm -hmm. LED screens, 360. Okay. Okay. Um, all the lighting, rigging cameras, the whole thing. And the audience on the screen in the full 360 uh -huh. in their own Zoom rooms, yeah. live, interactive. Yeah. Where I could pull them up at any moment, have a conversation with them. And, you know, we got the crowd noise and music and everything else. We got a stage in the middle. The whole thing. We spent twenty million dollars. We decided to do it in September. Uh, in August, we signed the lease on the building in September, and we did the event uh, December eleventh. Twenty million dollar studio is a crazy, crazy thing. Um, wow. But but we we had approximately forty thousand people attend from around the world, nine different languages. Wow. It was more intimate than any event that we ever had. It was multiple of any event we ever had. So I will just tell you um, the interaction, the intimacy, the connection, the, the vibe of it all, the live translation, um, you know, people connected from everywhere. Uh, 
the lesson I learned from that is this is a moment for creativity. The people who get the most creative, a lot of the leaders came into this event saying, this will be fine for now until COVID's over and then we can't wait to get face-to-face. -face. After the event, they said, I don't see why we'd ever go face-to-face -face for an event like this because my audience saved over a hundred million dollars just in travel expense. Of course, of course, of course. Do you think, do you think the, I mean, I understand what you mean by that. I can picture that very clearly because Tony was doing something sim similar a little while ago. We, 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 I called Tony because I saw his setup yeah. and I said, hey, will you rent me your studio? He said, yeah, I'm not renting it out to anybody. No offense, but uh, I'm just, you know, just going to do my thing. Um, so, you know, he spent like $5 million on ours and we went all out. We spent like $20 million. Um, wow. We're putting this together and now we're going to build them around the world. Um, I might put one here in Dubai. Um, we're talking about it. I'm, I'm going to put several of them in the United States. And, you know, so every single situation in the world. Hold on, why do you need to have ones in different countries? Because uh, imagine I put one here in Dubai. Yeah. How many businesses here in Dubai would use that to be able to reach the world, reach their communities, um, you know, all their different constituencies? I understand. You want to use it. They wouldn't necessarily want to fly to Vegas to walk into a studio there when they could walk into a studio here. I get it. I get it. I put one in New York City and every single shareholder meeting, they could use it for a shareholder meetings 365 days a year. Yeah. You know, as one use, let alone fashion, let alone... Do, do you do you think when you've got those people on, on on that screen and we're all looking at you at home on their Zooms, do you think they are as engaged typically as they would be when you're walking through a crowd? More. I didn't expect that, but it's more. Why? Because they, there's a tension there. Every single person has a front row seat, first of all. They're not in the nosebleeds. They're, yeah. they're from, and they can see themselves on the screen over my shoulder. They can see themselves. Yeah. And, and there's a tension because I could call them out at any moment and pull them up on the big screen and have a conversation with them. So they're all on, they're all ready, you know, and they can all engage in the chat at the same time. So they're sharing notes as they go. Yeah. And we have breakouts where we, we push a button, we break them into groups of five or six people and we give them a little uh, workshop assignment. And so they're meeting new people. And when I did, when I like the, the year before, when I did it at the MGM Garden Arena, I'd have about 60% of my total audience in the first night, um, Thursday night. I'd have a full audience on Friday. And then Saturday is the last day. By the last session, I'd have maybe 50% of the audience. Yeah. They'd all be out somewhere. This, I had 82% average watch from around the world the entire 30 hours of the event and there was no replay. So people starting uh, here in, in Dubai started at 8 p.m. and went till 8 a.m. And no replay. So, and people in Australia were starting at 2 a.m. and going till 2 p.m. for three straight days. So yeah. the engagement beyond belief blew my mind. So the lesson in all of this is while other people are waiting for things to get back to normal, the people who utilize the opening in the, the world changing and find a way to be creative and innovative are going to win. What a great, what a great thing to leave it on. That's fantastic. I, I hadn't thought about some of those things that you'd said and so, but it's bang on the money. So absolutely. Eric, I can't say thank you enough for coming and sharing your knowledge, your expertise. It's been an absolute joy to have you on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up. Well, how about that? What a great episode that was. Open, frank, honest conversations, telling people maybe sometimes stuff that they don't want to hear and stuff that they probably need to hear. If you want to be successful in network marketing, then Eric's definitely someone you should listen to. I'd really, really enjoyed talking to him. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading 
public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please leave me a five-star rating on iTunes. Also over on Spotify, if you follow me, that'll be great too. Wherever you are listening to this, the more that you do to support this podcast, the more that these podcast apps are going to share this content and give other people the opportunity to listen to it too. So please, if you're enjoying my content and it's bringing value to you and you're having fun listening to it, please, please, please help me in growing the podcast by doing those things. Looking forward to seeing you on the next episode.